Welcome to Medicus, a student-run podcast about any and all things in the world of medicine. Follow along as we interview outstanding individuals about important topics in healthcare. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Medicus. My name is Isabel Tan. And I am Lauren Heckman. You're joined here today with Dr. Andrea Dayrup. Dr. Andrea Dayrup is a professor of pathology at Duke University School of Medicine, where she is the course director of the medical school pathology course. Dr. Dayrup is also a co-editor of Robin's Essential Pathology and of Robin and Kumar Basic Pathology. Dr. Dayrup served on the Association of Pathology Chair's Undergraduate Medical Education Council. She has a thriving pathology website and YouTube channel that features information regarding pathology in addition to race and medicine. Dr. Dayrup received her undergraduate degree at Princeton University in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology, her PhD from the Department of Pathology at the University of Chicago, and her MD from the Pritzker School of Medicine at the University of Chicago. Dr. Dayrup completed residency in anatomic pathology at the University of Chicago and completed a one-year fellowship in soft tissue pathology at Emory University. Thank you so much for joining us today on Medicus, Dr. Dayrup. It's really my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. So we do our best to put together an overview of a bio for you, but is there anything you'd like to add to introduce yourself before we get started? No, I think we'll just let this unfold in the fullness of time. All right. So we wanted to start out by asking you how you chose to go into pathology and your medical journey thus far. All right. Well, I ended up in pathology really by accident. I think it was pathology that chose me more than the other way around. Uh, I had been planning on trying to do a residency in dermatology. And my rationale for choosing dermatology is that uh, I, I really enjoy working with my hands. I liked uh, doing surgery. Uh, our chief of service in surgery told me that I had the, uh, the most surgical personality he'd ever met. But I, I knew that I didn't want to be a surgeon. I, I wouldn't really be able to function in that lifestyle. But dermatology seemed like a good match because I could do some surgeries. And also with my PhD research, I was very interested in uh, gene therapy. And it seemed like skin would be a really good uh, opportunity for trying gene therapy since you could take a skin graft from a patient and manipulate the genes and then uh, reintroduce that back to the patient. So I, I was pretty excited about dermatology as a residency. I had a large number of interviews. I traveled around the country and was was pretty excited about it. I think that I went into my interviews with an unusual attitude. Well, from the residency applicants I've spoken with uh, here at Duke, from uh, our residents, from from other medical students, I know that uh, an interview for residency is really often seen as an audition. You're trying to show people how well you'll fit in and how you'd be great for this program. And for me, I felt like for much of my academic life, I had, in a way, tried to be what other people wanted me to be. Um, this is something that comes up frequently. We talk about masking, uh, not in the sense of preventing COVID, but in the sense of uh, I know a lot of medical students feel like they have to play a role or they have to present themselves in a certain way. And I I felt that way as a medical student. And I thought, well, when I go for my residency interview, I'm just going to be who I am. 
And if they like me, they like me. And if they don't like the person who I am, then maybe that wouldn't be the best program for me anyway. So I went out there and I was just me. And when it came time for us to learn our match results, I found out that I had not matched. And I was really surprised and shocked by that. Fortunately, I had a very good friend who was a pathologist uh, at the University of Chicago who said, oh, this is the best possible thing that could have happened to you. You never should have even been considering dermatology. Pathology is the field for you. And come in and meet with our new chairman, Dr. Vinay Kumar, and he'll talk with you about pathology. And so feeling a little bit shell-shocked and stunned, I, I walked into uh, Dr. Kumar's office uh, he said, you know, I'm just starting here. We would love to have you. These are my plans for the department. And I said, all right, let's, let's do it. And I've talked with a number of people who have not matched and the stress and the struggle and the strain that comes from that, that feeling of, you know, you've worked really hard in medical school, you've done so much. And then it's, it's like, nobody picks you to be on their team and it can be a really crushing defeat. And so what I'm holding out to people is that, you know, the universe is going to make a space for you and you get to create what it is that works for you. And I didn't go into that pathology residency thinking, well, I'll do this for a year and try to do something else. I was in with all four feet and it's been a fantastic experience for me. I think that if I had known what pathology could be, I probably would have gone ahead to match in pathology, uh, you know, when I was first interviewing, that would have been my specialty choice. I, I think it's an absolutely fantastic specialty that meshes really well with my personality, with my um, my skill set. I'm a very visual person. Uh, so I'm, I'm really, I'm really happy. And I just, I want to hold up that, that tail because I know that the match is a really stressful time for people and whatever happens, you will be able to create something marvelous and have a, a wonderful career. So, so don't be dismayed by that. Awesome. I think that's something that really resonates with me. And I know Lauren and I discuss this often as medical students, the question of who are we supposed to be and uh, in the different environments we find ourselves in as medical students in the hierarchy of medicine, how are we supposed to behave? Like, can we really be our full personality in an environment with like attendings or residents and navigating that can be difficult. Uh, we also wanted to know what does a typical day in the life look for you uh, as a professor, co-editor, and a med-ed producer? Well, if you'd asked me this 10 years ago, I could have given you a, a simpler answer, although life in academic pathology is incredibly varied, which is one of the things that I love most about it. I have a lot of interests, I have a lot of energy, and I get bored quickly. So if I were doing the same thing day after day after day, it would be impossible for me. So the typical day for an academic pathologist uh, would be in the morning, you would receive your slides and you would meet with a resident, you'd look at the slides, you would dictate your reports, you'd sign out your reports, you'd order stains, you'd work on papers, all sorts of varied, uh, interesting activities. For me, my world is completely different. So I actually retired from clinical medicine at the age of 45. I had been investing since I was 15 years old. 
and don't have children, which freed up a number of resources. And then I also was an MSTP member. So I, my medical school was uh, paid through a scholarship. And so I didn't feel, and I always knew that I, I wouldn't be whatever career I was until I was 70, that I would do it for, you know, 10, 15 years, do something else. I made it nine years before I, I left pathology. Uh, I was actually in training until I was 36. So when I retired, I had also, I was going to write a novel. Actually, I wrote a novel. It never went anywhere. Uh, but, um, you know, there are all sorts of things I wanted to do, but after I'd been retired for about a year, Duke University actually reached out to me to ask me if I would become the course director for their pathology course. And that's a whole other story how they even knew I was living in this tiny town about an hour from, from Duke. But I work there part-time. I have no clinical responsibilities. My only responsibility is teaching, which is fantastic because that's what I really enjoy. I love connecting with students. I love helping them to become better doctors. So a typical day for me is I will awaken, I will take my new boxer puppy out, then I let the ducks out. We have a, a small flock of ducks. We live on 35 acres on a river in rural North Carolina. And then I'm basically at the computer working a lot of the time. I'm bringing some projects to a close. I just finished recording an entire series of 82 or 83 lecture videos for Duke. Uh, some of I, I've also been putting those up on my website. And my course is about to get started in a week. So we'll have orientation on uh, January 31st. And then my five-month-long course starts. So I'll be doing that for five months at the same time that I'm going to be working on finally getting back to doing some more videos on race and medicine. I've been missing missing that. There are some that I have teed up to go. Yeah, just basically whatever the day hands me. I, I've been doing a lot of grand rounds. We're actually doing seven grand rounds this month, which has given us the opportunity to share. And I, by us, I mean my, my colleague, Dr. Joe Graves Jr. Gives us a great opportunity to connect with people all across the country uh, and talk about race-based medicine and why it needs to be changed. So, you know, and then my husband is a professional musician, so we'll play music at night. We enjoy cooking, uh, hiking in the forest. Uh, it's a pretty fun life, I have to say. Yeah. Wow. I feel like the description you've given of the 35 acres and from what we heard of the new puppy and living on the river, it kind of sounds like a, a fantiful life that you have. It also uh, makes me think about how much you can do with the medical degree. And there's so many different possibilities other than just practicing clinically. And it, it, um, it seems like you were able to use your MD and PhD and get recruited back without you knowing, even from your... Uh, from your tiny town. That's a really cool story. So you have developed a robust website and YouTube channel, both named Pathology Central, that provide information on pathology for medical students. Could you explain how you decided to develop that passion project and how it has been going? Sure. I don't know, about three years ago, two years ago, Elsevier reached out to me and asked if I would create videos for the Robbins textbook. And I said, nope not a chance. You know, I just, I mean, it is so much work and I, I, you know, I've got my areas of specialty, bone and soft tissue pathology, but you know, the liver, hematopathology, the brain, I mean, these are, these are big organ systems. There's a lot going on, the kidney. Uh, so I said, no, nah, thank you. But no, 
And uh, in the meantime, I had been you know, sort of thinking about, you know, race and medicine and uh, about how medical students learn pathology. I, I've had a lot of frustration because obviously as a pathology educator and a physician, I think pathology is so important for medical students to understand. I have this fear that is shared with many of uh, my colleagues in other uh, specialties that we're training uh, students. There's so much information that we're going into this algorithm-based uh, overwhelm of materials. So just use board review, uh, learn mnemonics, uh, do well on your step, and, and you'll learn what you need to learn in residency. And I really see the preclinical years as a time to really explore pathology and get that understanding and find the commonalities in the different diseases. Because I think this is what you really need to be an excellent clinician. There's you know, a minimum of material you can learn, and maybe that's good 80% of the time or 75% of the time. But I mean, to really be like that old style clinician who you know, asks questions and finds that that particular fact or orders this test and and makes that diagnosis and and brings that that person back to health. I think that really requires an understanding of disease. I'd had some frustration around this and, and wanted to put something out into the world that students would access because I think that the Robbins pathology textbooks are just stellar. They're what I learned from as a medical student. I read it cover to cover, wasn't even planning on being a pathologist, but I, I thought it read really well. And as an educator, I use it. So I think it's fantastic. One of the challenges is that current generations don't have that same curl up with a book for six hours thing that some of us old folks do. I mean, I'm, I can literally sit down in a chair with a cup of tea and not get up for six hours reading a book. Uh, and for a variety of, you know, social and cultural reasons, attention spans are a little shorter. And there's also, I mean, I remember reading things in medical school where you'd read it and you'd be like, that makes no sense. You'd read it again. That still makes no sense. It's like the sixth or seventh time you're like, okay, I'm starting to understand. But students with the amount of information, the amount of pressure, the amount of stuff going on, they want, I want to get it the first time. So give me something I can get the first time. So I sort of had that in the back of my head. And I'd been doing uh, yoga with Adrian videos, you know, during the pandemic. And I just, I woke up one morning, I'm like, I'm going to create pathology with Andrea, you know, I'm going to do, you know, sort of a, a pathology equivalent, just put it out there and hope that people would find it and find it useful. And so I actually reached out back to Elsevier and I said, I have, I've reconsidered because it all sort of came together. I needed to redo all the videos for Duke. I could also, you know, create them for my YouTube channel and I could get Elsevier's support for uh, using their images. And so we came to an agreement that they would let me use uh, the resources and I would record the videos. Uh, I'm almost done with that project. And as far as the name, uh, my husband is a professional mandolin player. He's, he's very proud of the fact he's never had a day job. He's been nominated for multiple Grammys and was the North Carolina Heritage Award winner. So he's, he's a very serious musician. But he also has a business called Mandolin Central, and his website is mandolincentral.com. 
And the way he got to the title Central was through readings of indigenous people. Uh, he's always been very interested in, uh, in Native American history and read somewhere where someone had said, you know, the problem with the white man is he does not understand where the center is. And so for Tony, his feeling was like, right here, this is where the center is. This is Mandolin Central. And so when it came time for me to come up with my name, I went with Pathology Central so we could have sort of matching websites, although mine is org and his is .com. And it's really growing. Uh, I've got 850 subscribers now, which I know by Yoga with Adrian standards is very, very low. But I do get some nice feedback from people. And I think that as word gets out that more and more people will find the videos useful. I've heard great things from people who, who say that it works. Really, they're very short. They're like 20 minutes, little bite-sized chunks so that you can focus on a simple thing like disorders of myelin or acute and chronic liver failure. So you can just get that understanding. I pick small chunks, but I do them in detail with the idea that if you can understand this chunk, it will help you to understand this disease process as a whole and will help make you be a better clinician. So my, my motto is, you know, deeper understanding equals better medicine. So it's, it's sort of the antidote to, to the mnemonic. It's uh, really about trying to build that deep understanding because I think for a lot of medicine, if you have that understanding, you can extrapolate and interpret and take the information so much further. And was making videos and being online and putting yourself on the internet, was that ever something that you expected to be doing? No, it's actually, it's hilarious. I, I, um, I'm very pragmatic and I just started recording the first video, like the keloid one is one where you can, that's one of the early ones and it was so good. I'm not redoing it. There were some of the early ones that I did redo because I'm like, oh my gosh, what was I thinking? You know, I hadn't had a haircut in three years. Uh, I didn't have lighting. I don't wear makeup. So now in the new ones, I've got, you know, my hair's cut short. I wear a little makeup. I got the contact lens. I didn't wear contact lenses for, for years after I retired uh, in uh, 2013, you know, I'm out on the farm. I just wear my glasses, but I'm like, I have a YouTube presence. And if I wear glasses, then there are these little ring light circles on my lenses. So this, this was completely from left field. I had no skills whatsoever. And I've got minimal interest in developing sexy, fabulous things for it. My, I'm about the purity and the accuracy and excellence of the information presentation. So one person was like, you know, you could really improve your videos if you had more graphics and animations. I'm like, no, no, that's, I'm not spending my time making a dancing kidney stone. No, I'm not going to do that. I didn't even know how to edit video. And for the first, I think my, maybe my first 30 videos, uh, I, had, I did them in straight takes. And so I would start and I'd get to like minute eight and I'd make a mistake and I'd start over. <laughs> and so... But it's been a lot of fun. I've really enjoyed it. I, I have a nice platform that I use so you get to see my little face in the corner because that's supposed to be better for educators. So that's what you like. That's what you get. Yeah, I think that medical students are constantly trying to take in the information in different ways. Nowadays, we do want to get it on the 
on the first try. And it's definitely reassuring to hear from you that as such an accomplished person that you didn't get some of the concepts uh, first time reading it. That's nice to hear and reassuring. Uh, but for people who are listening, the pathology videos are really easy to access. I feel like sometimes people watch lecture videos and then supplement with third-party resources. So definitely add this into your rotation. It's really nice to especially see the pathology of diseases from someone who's uh, been editing the textbook. I use Robbins all the time for practice questions and I actually do. I love a physical book, so I do carry those around with me. For me, I think one of the challenges of all of, there are so many resources available for students. How do you know which one to use? And what I like about these videos is I'm a Robbins editor. So you know where I come from, you know what I've done, you know that I know the book backwards and forwards. Uh, it's based on Robbins. It has Elsevier's images. These are fantastic figures that were just created for uh, the new uh, Robbins uh, basic pathology uh, our illustrations uh, editor, Abhijit Das. And they're, they're really, I mean, it's just... For pathology, it's such a visual uh, science that it's 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 really nice to have a figure that puts it all together. On your website, you have a tab labeled race in medicine and also have a playlist of videos on your YouTube channel that address this topic. Can you talk about your social justice advocacy in medicine and how you have incorporated it into your teaching and practice? Absolutely. I mean, it, I wouldn't have even been aware of it were it not for my teaching through through my students. And, you know, I, I also hold this out for all of you who are medical students is the uh, ability that each individual has to, to create change. It can be as simple as just asking a question. So on February, I think it was February 11th of 2021 or 2020, I got an email from a medical student wanting some clarity around race and health disparities and hypertension. This was week three of a five month long course. And so I had been thinking about race and medicine for about five years uh, by that point. And so I met with the students and talked with uh, the issues in the textbook. Um, the students, you know, understood that, but there was definitely an interest in a need. And I thought, you know, I really need to get an idea of how big a problem this is in part because just a few months earlier, Dr. Kumar had asked me to become a co-editor on uh, Robin's Basic Pathology. And that was a textbook that we'd been using to teach from. And I'd noticed a lot of racial associations again and again and again. And it, it sort of uh, bothered me, but I, I never really thought about it very much. It was, it was in Robin's, so we taught it. So I did a, a search through uh, the 10th edition of Robbins using terms like Caucasian, African, Hispanic, and found more than 35 diseases for which there was some sort of disparity associated with socially defined race or ethnicity. And these were all things that I had learned as a medical student. But, you know, Duke students were clearly very inquisitive, and I'm sure you are, and I've heard from other uh, pathology instructors as well, that when an association with race is made, students are like, but why? What does this mean? And so I wanted to answer that for the students. So I took each of those diseases and did a deep dive into the literature, uh, trying to learn for myself, why are there these disparities? Is there some sort of known basis for it? And the 
first one that I did was keloids. And I'm a soft tissue pathologist. I learned about keloids and their association with African descent when I was in medical school at the University of Chicago. And so I thought, oh, how am I going to do a deep dive on this? There's nothing to say. It's like saying water is wet and ice is cold. This is going to be boring. But then I started really diving in and I discovered that this figure that's been used everywhere that people of African descent or African-Americans or Africans have a 16% incidence of keloids. I was like, well, where does this come from? And, the, and I, I followed it all the way back to the literature because everyone would cite this number, but they wouldn't cite the actual paper. It actually came from 1931. And I put together a video on this. It was so exciting uh, for me to put this together and, and to share this very uh, racist literature with everybody because nobody knew this and it had been taken as you know a canonical fact that you know africans and african-americans and people of african descent have this high risk of keloids and and uh so with that that deep dive i generated this 85 page document and part of the goal on that was not only to help my students understand this because I think that's really the problem when we talk about race-based medicine is that we teach these associations like African-Americans get sickle cell disease and whites get cystic fibrosis. And that's something that you'll learn from your boards. You make those associations. Oh, you have a, a, a young, you know, an infant that's coughing and has a fever. It could be cystic fibrosis. Uh, or, oh, it's a, a Navajo woman with right upper quadrant pain. It must be gallstones. Uh, and I think we're doing a real disservice to students, to future physicians, to physicians, and to patients. So I used this 85-page document as preparation for the revision of the 11th edition of Robin's Basic Pathology, because I knew it would not be enough to simply say, hey, you know, where's the science for this? I had to show the science in order to remove it. And since then, I mean, I, I found this all so exciting and so interesting because I have a background in evolutionary biology. I connected with an evolutionary biologist uh, at North Carolina Agricultural and, and Technical State University in Greensboro. And it was a, like a mystery novel, just uncovering all of this and looking into it. And I was asked to give a grand rounds at Duke. So I gave one that I called Race and Robbins, Data or Distraction. And that was uh, March 6th of 2021. And I shared that link with the other three editors of Robbins and shared it with a few friends. And that link got shared around. And since March 6th, I think we've given 50 grand rounds, Dr. Graves and I together, all across the country and including Canada about race and medicine. And my goal now that I've finished this set of lecture videos for my Duke students on pathology education is to go back and to create more race and medicine videos. I want to talk about gallstones in American Indians and diabetes in Hispanics and all of these associations that are taught. You know, my goal had had been that with the new Robins, we would remove race-based medicine, that we would no longer be teaching medical students these simplistic associations without evidence. And we weren't able to do that. There still is some race-based medicine in Robbins. 
so with that in mind, that gives me some obvious entities to address. Uh, so lupus is one of them, sarcoidosis, multiple myeloma. What is what is the relevance of this and what is the impact for patients and students? So I'm really looking forward to that because I learn so much when I do it. So one question that we've gotten is what would we do if we had infinite resources to correct race-based medicine? You know, would we like make a feature length film? And for me, I really like what we do. I love giving these grand rounds because at each one, we change a few minds, we open a few eyes and we make a few more friends. And this builds this community. So like months after we've given a talk, we get an email from someone saying, hey, we have this international nonprofit tumor registry and we want to include ethnicity as a descriptor. Can you give us advice on that? And then Dr. Graves and I can meet with them and say, this is why we don't think you should do that. Or we'll get an invitation to work with somebody on a project based on someone who's doing a race-based medicine uh, research project, wants to know, well, what do we do instead of doing race-based medicine? So we're actually meeting with a, a radiologist next week to talk with her about her project and how we can shift that focus. So it gives us this opportunity to build a, a community of people at different institutions who are interested in this so that we can shift the narrative uh, all along. And, and I also think the benefit of these talks is that it's supportive for you as students to see attendings who do care, who are aware of the problems with race-based medicine. Uh, and then we've also taken it to uh, the national board exams because one of the reasons why you all learn race-based medicine is because that's what you're tested on. You know that if it says, you know, an African-American child presents with a fever and, uh, you know, joint pain, you have to start thinking sickle cell because that's, you know, what we teach. And so we've actually presented twice to the National Board of Medical Examiners to help open their eyes to the importance of removing race-based medicine. And we'd like to do that with specialty boards. So American Board of Pathology, American Board of Pediatrics. I mean, there's so many places if we can remove this from assessment, it will remove that pressure on people to learn this. So that's, that's some of what I've been doing. I would love to know more about some of the challenges that you face doing this kind of work, because you you talked about some of the great successes you've had, like being able to connect with so many people. Uh, but I can only imagine that there must be pushback, too, of people who say, you know, it's always kind of just been taught this way. Yes. So so that's a great point. In fact, one of the reasons why I decided to quite madly recreate all of the lecture videos for all of Robbins for a five month long course, right? You know, you know how it typically works is you're the course director, you go to the GI pathologist, you say, will you do the GI lectures? And they say, yes. And you go to the neuropathologist and say, would you do the brain lectures? And they say, yes. Uh, I decided I would do them all. Uh, some organ systems were more painful than others. I will be the first to admit. And I did get help from uh, individuals who I'd reached out and asked questions of. But one of the reasons I did that is because I wanted to be sure that everything was very clear and had a unified and uniform approach to socially defined race, to issues of skin color, to terminology, because I really didn't want to ask my faculty to record a, a video and then have to watch it and then go back and say, well, you know, here you said African-American and it really should have been of African descent because we're talking about a gene here and we really want to bring in population admixture or whatever, 
You know, I mean, they're, they're, it was easier and actually ultimately more fun for me to do it all myself. So that speaks to the difficulty in bringing everybody up to the same speed. I wouldn't describe any of my colleagues as being, you know, racist or, or biased or prejudiced. And yet within the framework of systemic racism, there is so much terminology, so many assumptions, so many scientific quote unquote facts that we each need to look at and do our own work. So I'm like, you know, I've done a lot of work on my understanding, so I will, I will do these. But I think when we give our Grand Rounds talks, they're very, very well received. But I suspect part of that is because the people who really disagree with what we say don't want to say something to us, which is great. It feels very nice. We give a talk and it's like, oh, that was wonderful. We're like, thank you. We do actually get some questions that remind us of the depth and breadth of systemic racism. And I, I think the one of the challenges for me is that change in medicine is very, very slow. There's a paper that came out that I think said it took between nine and a half and 17 years for 50% of physicians to adopt a practice that had been shown through evidence-based medicine and put in society guidelines as a best practice. So 17 years is a long time. And if you think about how long systemic racism is going on, it's it's not like it just happened and we can fix it right away. This has been going on for centuries. So it already feels like we're really, really late. And so to me, it seems like we should fix this more rapidly than it is being fixed. I believe that through what we're doing, we're actually creating profound shifts already. And that, that's very rewarding. It's one of the reasons why we have this absolutely punishing lecture schedule. I mean, to do seven grand rounds in four weeks is, is insane, but, you know, it's helpful. So the pace of change is frustrating. And then the other real problem that really hinders this change is that because systemic racism has been systemic for centuries, if you look in the medical literature there are thousands of studies that seem to support biological differences between races, between socially defined races. And when you're dealing with people who believe that this is true, that there are biological differences between races, then they can pull up several handfuls of papers that say, see, look, African-Americans are different in this and Asian-Americans are different in that. Um, it's it's almost like you have to have someone whose mind and heart is already open and who has the courage to step into that to say, oh, maybe what I've, and particularly when I'm talking about like older physicians who've had these beliefs for decades, it can be very unsettling for people to look at something that they have believed for decades and say, oh my gosh, I was wrong, particularly when it, you realize that you have done harm to many, many uh, patients uh, in that process. So I think that's been, that's been challenging. Um, but for the most part, it's like we're chipping away at the bottom of a glacier and that glacier is going to fall into the ocean and sea levels will rise, but that will be a good thing in this particular instance. 
Well, it's very inspiring for me as a med student who cares very deeply about this kind of work to know that there are people who are like higher up in the hierarchy who are not only aware, but actively working on it. Because I feel like sometimes for students, it's hard to feel like you have agency in this fight when you're being faced with material that you have to learn. But it's great to feel encouraged to question that kind of thing. And it's great too that your resources are available online, like for free, like anyone with an open heart and mind can go and watch your videos on race and medicine and educate themselves. And as you said, like do the work that's necessary to be able to have these kinds of conversations um, and be able to combat when people come at you with all this, all the papers that may have come from a place that isn't scientifically accurate. So that's fantastic because that, that was my goal in doing the YouTube channel and the website was to share all this freely and just an example of how this worked. So I put that keloids video up a couple, you know, year and a half or so ago and maybe two years ago. And in September of this year, I got this email from someone in the California Department of Public Health. And he said, um, hi, I'd like to talk with you. Somebody sent me your video. And what had happened was uh, with the monkeypox vaccine, as you know, we were uh, typically when we give vaccines, we give them subcutaneously. But if you can give it intradermally, you can use a smaller amount of vaccine. And we had very limited supplies of the mpox vaccine. So we could expand that fivefold if we did intradermal injections. And the United States CDC had put out recommendations saying that, you know, if you have a history of keloids, uh, you should get a subcutaneous injection, not an intradermal. When this physician in California opened up the recommendations from her hospital, it included something about race-based medicine because it said not only if you have a history of keloids should you get a subcutaneous injection, but there are certain races that have a higher risk of, uh, of keloids, including you know, people of African, Asian, Hispanic descent, in which it can range from less than one up to 16%. Well, that 16% came from the 1931 paper that was, I cite in my video explaining the, the problems with this. So the physician sent that on to her hospital. They said, okay, we're going to remove the race-based medicine and send it on to San Francisco. San Francisco looked at it and said, okay, we're going to remove our race-based medicine and send it on to the California Department of Public Health. And Dr. Graves and I met with them over Zoom, and three days later, they removed the race-based medicine from their recommendations. This is huge because we're talking about people who might be vaccine-hesitant already, and then you're going to raise up, oh, and you could get some horrible disfiguring scar. It, it really could have an impact on uh, getting appropriate vaccination. That, for me, has really supported my decision to spend the time creating these videos and putting them out there so that anyone can use them to make their point and to uh, help people to uh, to see more clearly. And then just regarding your statement about, you know, agency as a, as a medical student and, and, you know, things are given to you, I have to say that uh, medical students are in a very wonderful place in that you can ask questions. And the way that this student asked me, it wasn't, uh, uh, you know, so there's this racist stuff in the textbook and we have problems with it. It's like, could you please clarify this for me? I'd like to understand it. And if you go in with that, 
from a position of curiosity and wanting to understand, maybe they give you an answer that makes sense to you. Maybe they don't. If it doesn't make sense to you, read more, ask somebody else. Uh, but, but just asking a question and expressing curiosity without putting a negative energy onto it. I mean, that for me, I think a lot of people can get defensive if you're like, you know, I'm really concerned about race-based medicine and it says this. Um, people often will adopt a defensive posture. And if you just come at it, so why do, why do we teach this? And what does this mean? I think it's a really good approach at helping uh, people to explore. I had the exact thought come across my mind when you said to stay curious as medical students. I think that it's really ingrained in us to study from the textbooks that people did before us, use the third-party resources that people did before us. Oh, the older students said that this is good. I'll use it too. And finding um, your niche within the education and questioning things if it doesn't feel right to you. Clearly, you did that and you've made real impacts. I mean, the California State Health Department, that's incredible and very impressive. And it can be as innocent as asking around. And I think that in medical school, especially, this is the one time where we do have access to all specialties too. I think you end up almost into a marriage with a certain group of people once you choose a specialty for residency, but we are lucky to have time now to have access to all departments and get perspective from people all throughout their their careers, whether that's fellow medical students to residents to attending. So it's definitely an inspiring story. And I think everyone should go to Pathology Central on YouTube and check out these videos, especially like Isabel said, that they're free and available for everyone. So thank you for making that possible for, for medical students. Of course, and you're starting your neurology content. I just I just finished the neurology videos. There are a number of those. So check those well, out. Yes, we'll have to use that. I can get all the help that I need in neurology for sure. It's an intimidating block to go into. Absolutely. To change gears a little bit, you have so many projects and clearly so many passions. I'm curious what your practices are for finding balance in your life. So that's something that I'm actually really focusing on this year. One of the reasons why I am so productive is because it is challenging for me to sit still and feel emotions. So I had a, a fair amount of uh, trauma as a child and have uh, struggled with depression uh, intermittently in my life. And I've tried meditation and I'm not particularly good at it because I really live in my brain. I mean, I'm a, I'm, I'm a very cerebral person and had been trying to develop a meditation practice in part uh, based on a book called uh, One Year to Live, which is not about a patient who has a year to live, but about a meditator, a palliative care individual who was wanted to live one year as if it were his last year, like this is my last January 22nd or my last January 23rd to try to crystallize what it is that is important. And when I, one of the recommendations was is to sit and feel your emotions. And when I would try to sit still and feel my emotions, I wasn't feeling a lot of joy. 
And that's one of the reasons why I'm so productive is because if I am churning out, you know, 82 videos in nine months, I don't have time to sit and feel. I'm creating, I'm learning about uh, neurodegenerative disorders and it's fascinating and it's interesting. So one of my focuses for this year is to pull back some from the uh, the busy work. Told the other Robbins uh, editors back last May that this would be my last edition of Robbins, that I would I would work on Robbins Basic Pathology, but would not continue uh, with the editorial team. They actually had asked me to be part of um, all of the books uh, in the series. So Robbins Essential Pathology, Robbins Basic Pathology, Robbins Pathologic Basis of Disease, and Robbins Review of Pathology. And I said, you know, I am stepping away from from the editorial team. I've been asked to write a book about race and medicine. I don't know if I will do that or not because my my goal is really to try to learn how to sit still and to feel the feelings that I need to feel so I can let go of them. So that's my sort of focus on on that. Let's segue the way that I maintain balance was first of all to work part-time even when i worked full-time i have a huge amount of energy and so was able to get and i'm very efficient so i can get a lot done but working uh i mean obviously i don't work part-time i I work part-time at duke but i work full-time doing videos and editing and things like that uh but i wouldn't be able to do all the stuff that is fun and invigorating and energizing for me if i were exhausted because i was working uh, at a job uh, five days a week. Instead, I I work on my projects seven days a week, but it's a good trade-off. Exercise is absolutely critical uh, for me. When I was uh, just starting my residency in 2000, I got an exercise bike because it seemed the most efficient way to stay in shape because I lived in Chicago. And as you know, even though you can get a gym membership very cheaply as a student, when it's, you know, there's a foot of snow out, you have to, you know, go out. And it's, a, it's really challenging. If I just had an exercise bike in my house, I could just work out without having to go anywhere. And it was too complicated to exercise every other day. So I work out every day and I've worked out on my exercise bike every day now for 23 years. And that's really critical for me to burn off stress or anxiety. Uh, I also do, obviously, yoga with Adrian, as we discussed. And... I work on a, uh, a meditation practice with my husband. Uh, we, we meditate together in the morning. But I'm also really trying to uh, expand my toolbox as far as uh, embracing joy and focusing on what energizes me and stepping away from things that don't. I won't try to generalize. Maybe I'll speak from my own experience where I feel that, especially in medical school, it's hard not to constantly think about, oh, what can I do to really put myself in the best spot for residency? And there's not a lot of control with that. And so I personally find myself focusing on the things that I can control, like working out and making sure that I'm taking care of my body and putting feeding myself foods that will make me feel good, not bad. Um, although the candy at our medical school makes that hard sometimes. It is 
you know, for the obvious reasons, really important to work out and take care of your body and make sure that you're taking care of yourself through these stressful times. But especially in um, when you work really high stress positions, having that control and feeling like, okay, maybe I don't, I can't say what the future will hold for me in two years, but I can uh, get into a routine today. And I don't think I've ever finished a workout and regretted it, been said, oh, I really wish I didn't you know, take that 30 minutes to myself and run, run outside and get some vitamin D. So that, that resonates with me a lot. Not working out is always an easy thing to be, to say like, oh, I'll sacrifice the workout just so I can study that extra hour or so I can fit in that extra extracurricular. But I think it's important to be consistent with those things, especially when they help your mental health so much. Yeah. And I would just also just hold out to you again that this stress and this anxiety around what what you need to do to get into that perfect residency or to, you know, I mean, there's this, we have this preoccupation. There's this almost this belief that, you know, there's this path and you, and you, it's, it, you know, you look through and you, you have to like step on the right stones in order to make it through safely to the other side. And I would just say that, you know, we're very fortunate. We are in a, a field that has so many branches and twigs and leaves that you can wander off onto. And there are so many pathways to get where you want to be. And I know it doesn't feel like that. It's going to feel like, oh, if I don't get to the, you know, the orthopedic surgery residency, then I'm going to be at some, you know, residency that's not as good. Or what if like that Darup chick, I don't even match, right? Um, but really the resilience and the stress relief is to have faith that it will all be okay, that there is not one residency for you. There's not even one specialty for you or one state you can live in or, you know, oh, I mean, everything feels so dramatic and so, oh, but my partner is from Minnesota. We need to be in Minnesota. The family, his mother is sick. You know, it's going to be okay. And this was, you know, something you'd asked me, you know, last time we spoke, what advice would I have for medical students? It's enjoy where you are. I mean, when I see the the stress that Duke medical students are experiencing, I don't remember feeling that when I was a medical student, I, I don't remember feeling the the same pressure. And, and I understand that it's not because I was special and chill because anyone who knows me would recognize that I am not chill, but that the pressure was not as significant. There've been a lot of issues with, you know, grade inflation or step scores or now step one is gone to pass fail. So now how do I distinguish myself? Oh, I've got to do, I mean, there's just so much pressure. And the truth matter is, is I had a blast in medical school and I didn't really fret too much with about getting into residency and see how that worked out for me. Um, it worked out fine, but there was a, there was a hiccup, but I mean, you are in a place right now where you are charged with learning and building this matrix of, of information that you can access and, and, oh, this patient reminds me of this disease, which is the pathology. This is how I remember this. And I mean, I remember many of the patients that I saw as a medical student, and that's where you can really slot the book learning into the career. But the pressure 
is being put on you by the system and it's being put on you by yourselves. And the easiest thing to do if you can is to release the pressure you're putting on yourself and just know you're brilliant, you're fabulous. And there are a million different ways to create your future and you will create it in a beautiful way. It's very inspiring to see you in a place where you so clearly are invested in things that you're passionate about and that you get to spend your time doing things that genuinely bring you fulfillment, you know, um, and you get to work towards, you know, the race and medicine being like a passion project, but also like an actual tangible change that you get to enact. It's all very inspiring to see. Um, but I wanted to say thank you too for sharing about your relationship with mental health. And, you know, that can be something that we keep in or take out depending on how you feel about it. But even just to hear it for like us too, I know that that's mm -hmm. something that we both have been talking a lot about recently. Um, you know, just kind of how to stay ourselves and how to stay a person whilst trying to be a medical student. Because I think for me, um, and yeah, maybe this is just for us. Maybe this is something we leave in. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But for me, something that I am actually like part of the stress for me as an M2 is like, I don't want to get to the end of the road or like not even the end of the road, but to get to match or get to post match and like realize that I'm no longer myself. Um, and mm. maybe this resonates with you. I don't know if, if student doctor Andrea um, had a lot of passions in medical school that you feel like you had to kind of sacrifice in your pursuit of being a doctor, or if you were able to keep it all together throughout the whole journey. Well, first of all, you have to sort of ask, what is the self? Who are you? Right? So, I mean, that's, that's a very, very big spiritual question. Right. So who are you? And am I a different person? Because for my YouTube channel, I got a haircut. I wear, I mean, I never wore makeup ever, ever. I wear, you know, I, I'll, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to record. I got to put in my contact lenses, got to put on my makeup, got to do the hair, got to, you know, you, you will see the same shirts over and over again because I don't have a, a huge uh, wardrobe. But um, is that me or is that, my YouTube personality. Well, it's it's part of me. It's who I who I am right here. It's what I'm trying to communicate or reach out in a certain way. Um, I really think that we have an incredible ability to realize our dreams, and a lot of that has to do with letting go of the goals. So, you know. Maybe when you're a little kid, you're, you got the idea that you should be a cardiologist. Your parents want you to be a cardiologist. You're going to be, oh, your dad's a cardiologist. Let's all be cardiologists. And, and that's, that's your goal. I think that can lead to frustration. And I think the other thing that really confounds people is ego. Ego can really get in the way and drive. I mean, I, I have to be very conscious of it. There was a time when I was being recruited and one of my husband's friends said, well, you know, gosh, that must be good for your ego. And I said, you know, I, I really don't want to feed my ego. Yeah, it's really gratifying to think that these people want to hire me, but that's not the position I want. It doesn't match with who I am. It's all about ego. So I can say, oh, yes, yes, I'm a professor at X. What does that do for you? for yourself, right? That doesn't do anything. And the truth of the matter is, is that yes, while it's really flattering, it's not a position that would bring me joy. And so I think one of the most important 
steps as you're creating your your life is to really ask, you know, at each step, what what do I want? And is this step taking me in the direction I want to go? And then be open to possibilities. I mean, if someone had said to me, even 10 years ago, oh, someday you'll be a full professor at Duke and you'll be giving talks all across the country and you'll get asked to apply for position as a, as a chairman of a department. I would have laughed. I think that's the other thing is that we we often as students and particularly in medicine, particularly when you look at how your career unfolds, your training, right? So you go, you have to pick a good med school so you can get to a good residency, you can get a good fellowship and get a good job. So it's all future. And living always in the future creates anxiety. If you can live in the present, right? My role right now is to learn as much about disease and its diagnosis and treatment as I can. And to put that in the context of the human connection, right? So when you talk about maybe losing yourself, right? For me, the most important part about being human is connecting with other humans. And as long as you focus on that, that connection, then you're you're on the right track. It's when you lose that connection, you get lost in some external thing that you can find you're not really where you want to be. Yeah, I often discuss with friends this idea of lifestyle inflation when you talk about the future. Um, Not a perfect correlation, but I think a lot of times medical students, including myself, think I'll be happy once I get to residency. Once Mm -hmm. I'll give up things now and once I get to residency, it will be fine. And then, oh, once you're in residency, oh, once I get that fellowship I really want, like then I'll have time for my hobbies, then I'll be happy. And then once, oh, it's actually once I'm becoming an attending, that's when my life will be back to normal and I'll have all the time for all the things that I've put off and sacrificed. And you miss out on life along the way. And I found that I do that. There's finding some balance between, you know, sometimes putting your head down and working through the weekend and realizing that that was the right thing to do to get through a test or maybe a a big push for a research project, Uh, but also making sure you're checking in with yourself. And I think that especially medical students nowadays really fall victim to that. Um, Oh, I'll just do this up until that point. And then once yeah. I get there, that will be it. But I feel like that's rarely true in life. Yeah, I um, I, I actually sort of did the, the opposite. So when I was in college, I won a Rotary Fellowship to study in Paris for a year. So I took a year off from school, even though I was going to be studying the whole time because I, I wanted to enjoy my undergraduate years. And then after I graduated from college, I took another year off. And I spent three months studying marine biology in Puget Sound and five months backpacking through Asia by myself because there were a number of reasons for that. One was that I knew that the dualistic world that we hold here in the West is not universally accepted in the East. And I wanted to spend time, I spent time in a Buddhist monastery in Thailand and trying to open up to some of that before my brain got calcified in, in, you know, adulthood. Yeah, I I got my first job at 36. I mean, I took the slow route and I only managed to stay working for nine years before I was like, okay, well now let's do something else. And I've known uh, since I was 17, I was in this very minor car accident on my bicycle. I was like, oh my goodness, I could die at any moment, completely randomly. 
so this idea that the future is where I'm going to get my reward has never really worked for me because um, of the awareness that uh, we are mortal and we don't know how long we have and we should, uh, you know, this is not like the eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die, but it's more be sure that what you're doing is for the right reason and that it's meaningful for you so that, you know, if you are struck down, it's not like, well, I spent the last 15 years in absolute misery, hoping that three years from now I would be happy. I really try to be present. I would actually counter what you've said about it's going to get better when you're an attending or when you're a resident, when you're a fellow, to say that it actually gets harder. I hate to break the news to you, but your responsibilities are going to go up. Uh, and it won't just be your responsibilities in your career, but it's also, you know, whatever family responsibilities uh, you have, either to your parents or spouse, children, partner, whatever. Uh, for me, a real eye-opener was when I became an attending. I mean, it was really hard because you're looking at the microscope and you're like, okay, is this cancer? Is it not cancer? Yeah, it's cancer. Okay, next case. And I thought, okay, you know, with experience, like when I get, you know, after five years, I'll be really fast because I'll, I'll recognize it. But what happens is, is that after five years, you know of all of the mistakes that other people have made. And so it's not an obvious cancer. It's something that could be a mimic of cancer or, oh, that's, you know, not just a perforation due to diverticulitis. There's actually a signet ring carcinoma there. And so one becomes aware of, of more pitfalls. So really it's as, you know, Macklemore and Kesha have said, these are the good old days and really enjoy it. I mean, I look back at my time as an undergraduate at Princeton and I did not do it well. I could have had a lot more fun and explored a lot more things than I did, but I was pretty revved up and anxious. By the time I got to medical school and, and graduate school, you know, things were just so much, they were so crazy that, and there was so much going on. I mean, Chicago, it's an amazing city that I really just relaxed around and I just had a great time. So have fun, really embrace it and enjoy it. I know you know Robbins, obviously, and so I know you know that dog-earing the signet ring carcinoma for both of us. We were like, oh, because we just had GI so for both of us, we were like, ah, <laughs> oh, so you know what you're doing with that one. But absolutely. Um, and you kind of knocked down our closing question, which was the advice to the pre-meds or medical students right now. But perhaps a good closing question could be, uh, we talked a lot about joy and finding moments of joy in the day-to-day. -day. Uh, what are some moments of joy that you've been finding recently, big or small? There's really nothing more joy producing than a baby animal. So about this time last year, I had six ducklings uh, that have shown up in, on my Twitter feed. And then now I've got a, a baby boxer and I just love watching him play with my other dog. They rough house. It's just outrageous. I, I really enjoy connecting with my colleagues and, you know, working with uh, Dr. Graves it's just, it's so gratifying and meaningful 
what we're doing uh, and the impact it's having. Uh, talking with you guys brings me joy. I mean, it really does. It's it's like here are two people I otherwise never would have encountered, and we get to have this really good conversation. I really enjoy that human connection. So yeah, that's that's where my good joy comes from. There's like the bad joy of like, oh, I could make snickerdoodles and eat six of them. Uh, I don't do that very much. But. I love that. Um, I think that this both definitely brings us joy too. I find that with the Medicus, it's such a great segue to be able to talk to people that you wouldn't yeah. otherwise have been able to talk to. And I definitely loved it. So thank you for joining us. We had such a wonderful conversation with you. And to our listeners, we'll link all the resources in the description below. But just to reiterate, those are pathologycentral.org. And if you go onto YouTube, type in Pathology Central, you'll see the wonderful Dr. Andrea DeRope with her wonderful pathology slides. So definitely check that out. So thank you so much again and hope to see you soon. My pleasure. Enjoy the rest of your week, okay? It was a real pleasure connecting with y'all. Thanks for listening to this episode. This wouldn't be possible without the support from our listeners. Please rate, review, and subscribe. We appreciate donations to help fund the production of this podcast. To support us, go to medicuspodcast.com where you can additionally find show notes, links, and information about our guests. We are at Medicus Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have any questions, comments, or episode suggestions, please submit them on our website. This podcast is intended for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine. No patient-doctor relation is formed, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Views and opinions are their own and do not represent any organization.